0: Thank uh-huh. you. I want to play musical Jeopardy with you for just a moment if we could. I want to see if you recognize these lyrics. Here we go. I believe for every drop of rain that falls, a flower grows. I believe that somewhere the darkest night, a candle glows. I believe for everyone who goes astray, someone will come to show the way. I believe. I believe. I believe above the storm, the smallest prayer will still be heard. I believe that someone in the great somewhere hears every word. Every time I hear a newborn baby cry or touch a leaf or see the sky, then I know why I believe. Y'all recognize those lyrics? You do? Okay. We had several in the first service, which, man, the first service was a whole lot bigger than this service. I guess everyone decided to come at 9 o'clock this morning. But uh, uh, yeah, we had several in the first. But who, if, raise your hand if you knew that song. All right. Good number. Okay. Who, who sang that song? Who made it popular? Uh, that's what I thought. I didn't know either. Frankie Lane is the one who popularized this song. It was actually written in 1953, and he recorded it there in later 1953 as well. But uh, he, he's an Italian-American singer. Uh, song that, that, that we just read from, spent 18 weeks at number one. It really kind of set the pace as one of the, 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 the most popular songs of that era, if not the pop, most popular song of that era. It had a pretty catchy tune. I guess that's why it spent so long at number one. But here's the kicker. There's a lot of churches back in the day, maybe even some churches today, I'm not sure. But back in the day, there was a lot of churches that would sing this song on a Sunday morning, which puzzles me. Because if you read the lyrics, it has nothing to do with Christianity. It has nothing to do with the gospel. It has nothing to do with Jesus and salvation. Uh, Literally, the the song is a a mantra of the postmodern mindset. In fact, Frankie Lane celebrated the fact that it had this postmodern philosophy behind it. After he recorded the song in an interview talking about this song and and that postmodern mindset, he said this. He says it accomplished an awful lot because it said all of the things that needed to be said in a prayer, yet it did not use any of the holy words. In other words, it didn't mention God or Lord or his or or the King James versions of those thine and thou, it just left all those out. He says it said, he said it all and it changed the whole spectrum of faith songs. It changed that dynamic. It took God out and it put man in place of it song and how people embraced it, I think really illustrates the postmodern era. Uh, I believe is sort of that, that, that mindset, it's that, that, that statement, I believe. And so you hear that statement, at least for me, I want to ask the question, what do you believe? And so that person from that philosophy is going to say, well, I just believe. I'm not sure what I believe. I just believe. I believe in something. And that's exactly what the lyrics of this song are saying. I believe that somewhere in the darkest night, a candle glows. Wow, that's life transformational, right? That's, that, that's just going to really make a difference in someone's life. I believe for everyone who goes astray, someone will come to show the way. Who is that person? Well, I don't know. I just believe somebody's going to come and find them. I think somebody's going to step in and help. We don't know who that person is, but surely something's going to happen. The song has nothing to do with God. The philosophy has nothing to do with God. His word or redemption. So, if we're going to understand where that mentality comes from, we really need to back up a little bit further and and start with the the philosophy of modernism, the idea of modernism. Really, it's a period of time. We got to go back to the 17th century. We got to go back to the French philosopher Rene Descartes. There in France, he went into his Dutch oven, as it's told. He came out of that Dutch oven, and he uttered these words that are pretty famous. I think, therefore I am. You learned that in school, I'm sure. He made that statement, and all of a sudden, the Enlightenment was birth. The philosophy behind the Enlightenment basically said that man, through his human reason, can attain universal truth. In other words, we can think and find truth by our reason. Man doesn't need the Word of God. He doesn't need God. He doesn't need a Savior. All man needs is his own mind, and he can find truth. That's modernism. Modernism began to morph. Nothing stays the same, and so we move ahead, and we get to the late 19th century, moving into the early part of the 20th century, and things begin to shift to what's now called as postmodernism, where this song is generated from. Postmodernism basically says there is no absolute truth. Modernism says we can find truth in our minds. We don't need God. Postmodernism says there is no absolute truth. And so we move on from there. And now today we're in this period that some are calling metamodernism. This idea basically says you can make up your own truth. So we find truth in our minds. There is no absolute truth. Now, with meta modernism, well, there is no one truth. What's true for you can be true for you, and what is true for me can be true for me, and we're going to find our different truths. That's what meta modernism is saying. Everyone is right. And of course, if you think logically, like I do, very black and white, very linear, that reasoning doesn't even. Reason, right? It doesn't make any sense. 50 years ago, people would have heard this philosophy and said, that is nothing more than idiocy. And yet today, we raise that up and say, this is what it means to be sophisticated. Okay? So, this shift in thinking, unfortunately, though, is not just secluded to secularists. We'd like to think, well, that's the secular philosophers, that's the Rene Descartes type people, that's others, that's not the people of God, that's not in the church, and yet that's not the case at all. We've seen a shift, just like we've seen a shift in culture. We've seen it in the church. And so today, there are Christians who are too embarrassed to stand up, too embarrassed to be called Christians for at least two reasons. We could go and be here all day listening out some reasons, but let us just give you two of them. First, some Christians do not want to offend other people. Or again, modernity says uh, we all have our truth. You've got your truth, I've got my truth. And so if I try to impose my beliefs and values on you, then that's, that, that's not right. And so I don't want to offend you. I don't want to hurt you. So I'm just not going to do that. So this Christian, this person who identifies as a believer, but doesn't want to offend others by telling them their truth, which they have got from the word of God and through Jesus Christ, they would rather offend God than offend their buddies, offend their families, offend their coworkers. So they would act as as if they're ashamed of the gospel, ashamed of their decision to follow Christ rather than sharing that with someone else. You might face this a little bit. The apprehension that share the gospel with someone is falling in line with this sort of thinking. Second, they're terrified that if they do stand up and declare to be a follower of Christ, then someone might actually ask them, what is it you believe? What is it that that leads you to have this sort of convictions in your life? What is it that, that leads you to the point where you decided to follow Jesus? And the Christians, many of them, don't know how to answer that question. I don't really know what I believe. I believe. I have faith, but not really sure of what that faith is in, or better yet, who that faith is in. They just simply believe. Very similar to the song, I believe. For every drop of rain that falls, a flower grows. So what do we believe? I want to wrestle with this question this morning because I believe Christians are terrified of this question because we just simply don't know what we believe. We're not grounded in what we believe. Here's what I want to always uh, be guilty of as a pastor. I don't want to come in Sunday after Sunday and in small groups or in discipleship training or anytime I have an opportunity to invest in you as a, as a member and attender of this church. I don't want to ever be accused of just keeping things on the surface. Let's just make things fun and emotional and, and wonderful and have this great experience. And you really are never grounded in the truth of the word of God. And so this morning, I should have told this to the first service. But this morning, I want you to kind of take your plow, if you will, and set it a little bit deeper in some theological soil. Let's do some plowing together. You all with me on the farming illustration? All right, good. Spring's coming, right? it will be here soon. So what do we believe? Well, the second half of chapter three in Luke's gospel, where we're at this morning, we're going to discover some distinct doctrines that I believe are important. There are many doctrines throughout the word of God that we need to be grounded in. And this morning, I want to point out four of those, because I believe there's distinct doctrines that if we understand them, they're really what makes us Christian. If we're going to be Christian, in other words, there are some distinct doctrines we must believe we must embrace. So look with me in Luke chapter three, and uh, we're going to, Look at, deal with the rest of the chapter, but I'm not going to read it all this morning for the sake of time. So look with me at verse 21. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son, with you I'm well pleased. Verse 23. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph. Remember, that's his stepdad. That's Mary's now husband, but not his biological father, the son of Heli. Look at verse 38. Luke tracks on through the genealogy. He comes to verse 38, and he says, The son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. We're going to deal with the genealogy in a little bit, but that's what... What we see here in the latter part of this chapter, as Luke lays out this the, the scene that's taking place in the life of Jesus as his ministry is being launched, and then he moves quickly into this genealogy. So let's back up and just make sure that we understand what is happening in the text. As we've read, John the Baptist is preaching. We dealt with that last Sunday as we began chapter three. John is preaching and he's baptizing. He's there on the banks of the Jordan River and people are coming and they're hearing him preach and they're being brought under conviction of their sins. They're turning in faith and repentance. They're they're trusting in the Messiah who is coming. And in fact, we dealt with already that uh, many people were coming and hearing and seeing all that was happening, seeing the difference taking place in people's lives that they knew. And John or, or Mr. Joe was coming and and Mr. Joe was not very godly. He was kind of a person you couldn't trust. And he came, come, he heard John preach, and his life was changed. And he didn't just make a spiritual decision or a religious decision. There's evidence of that. And so they're mystified by all this. And they begin to wonder if John is the Messiah. And so John began to set them straight. He says, no, I'm not the Messiah. In fact, I'm not even worthy to untie the sandal of the one who's coming. He'll baptize you with fire. I'm baptizing you with water. We dealt with that last Sunday. But the people are wondering. And so John is preaching, people are listening, brought under conviction, responding in faith and repentance, and the outward expression of this interchange that's taking place is baptism. They're being baptized by John there in the Jordan River. This particular day, after the people, Luke tells us, had been baptized, Jesus began to come down through the crowd. He comes into the river, and he asked to receive baptism. Now, John immediately wants to prevent this. John immediately is is pushing back. He he knows Jesus. He recognizes him as the Messiah. He recognizes his holiness. And if we look at other gospels, he's actually saying, I am the one that should be baptized by you, and yet you want me to baptize you. Matthew records for us an interesting statement that Jesus makes, Matthew 3.15. He says, "'Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness.'" Now, why would Jesus need to be baptized? Think about this with me. Was he not already holy? Was Jesus not sinless? Was Jesus not the sinless, perfect son of God? Also with that, was John also not declaring a baptism of repentance, which would mean that if you're coming to be baptized, you're sinful and you need forgiveness. It's just all those things. Yes, Jesus was sinless. Yes, Jesus was holy. Yes, Jesus was righteous. Paul even says in 1 Corinthians 1 that Jesus Jesus is our righteousness. We also know that John is preaching a message of repentance. He's calling people to be baptized in response to that. So why would Jesus undergo John's baptism? Well, the reason for Jesus to do so was to identify with the righteous actions of his people. See, as the embodiment of righteousness, Jesus did not come to John to confess. He didn't come to John to repent of sins. He had none of those. He simply came to make himself one with those who did submit to the right, to fulfill, or the right in order to fulfill all that the law required. so he's acquainting, being acquainted with humanity. John began to understand this. Now we're getting, we're getting this little snippet. Of the scene here. I don't know if this was a long interchange. I don't know if John kind of argued with Jesus, but immediately, or at least at some point, he began to understand this is what we should do. He consents to it. So he baptizes the Lord Jesus. And Luke tells us that something amazing happened. Now, the crowd didn't get all this, right? The crowd is watching Jesus, and they think he's just another person, though John's made some claims about him. But they didn't really expect much. So Jesus is baptized just like all of the thousands that came before them, right? Before Jesus. And yet, heaven is looking down on this, and they, heaven had a different perspective. Heaven had a different response. Luke tells us the heavens opened, and, and, and the Spirit of God descended, and the voice of the Father uh, echoes and thunders His approval. It's a beautiful scene. What does all this mean, and how does it connect to the genealogy? We need to go back just a step further. Go back to Luke chapter 1, verse 2 one, two, and three, we see there Luke is is giving us the reason for writing his gospel. He says he's writing to Theophilus. Obviously, he's writing to us today, and he's writing to give an orderly account of Jesus and his ministry. He wants us to know who Jesus is and why he came and what he did, wants to help us understand the purpose in all of that. So as he's writing out his gospel, as he includes all of these different and various details, he's showing us what it all means. So the purpose in Luke moving from Jesus's baptism to his genealogy is to teach us, I believe, some doctrinal things about the life and the ministry and the difference Jesus makes in our lives. So this morning, what I want you to do is I want us to understand that as a Christian, there are some distinct doctrines that we need to believe to be Christian For our faith to be Christian faith, there are some things that we must believe. Again, going back to the song, I Believe. We're not like that. Our belief is not in belief, right? We don't believe in belief. Our faith is not in faith. It's rooted and grounded in a person and in a work accomplished on the cross. In a Bible that's revealed God to us, there's an objectivity to our faith. And so this morning let me just lay out four doctrines that we see here in the text as quickly as I can. Here we here we go. We must understand the importance of number 1, believing on Jesus as Lord and Savior. Verse 21, Luke says now when all the people were baptized. Now when all the people were baptized. Last Sunday we learned from the first half of this chapter that the people were baptized in response to the gospel. They weren't just baptized because there was some religious thing to do. No, they came and they heard John preaching. Remember, he says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to come, right? Who who warns you to flee the wrath to come? He's preaching the gospel. He's pointing them to the Messiah. So they hear this. They're convicted of their sins. They turn to the Messiah who's coming in faith and repentance. And baptism was the outward expression of the confession and repentance that they had made. So John, as he's preaching and baptizing, we see that he's clearly not satisfied with people becoming more religious. He's not satisfied with just building a crowd. What he's uh, concerned about is seeing lost sinners find forgiveness and new life in the coming Messiah. He's the same thing that we should be concerned about in our own lives when we talk with others. He wanted to see a difference. He wanted to see a transformation. And this transformation is indicative of the people's personal faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior. There was a change in the lives of those who heard and repented. So John preached and pointed people to the Messiah who would would save them from the judgment upon their sins. They believed on the Messiah. They didn't just believe in the Messiah. They believed on the Messiah. You say, what's the big deal between in and on? Well, there's a big difference. As Christians, I clearly believe, and I think we clearly see in the text, that when we come to Jesus, we we don't just simply say, I believe that you exist. I believe that you died on a cross. I believe that you were buried in a grave. I believe that you rose from the grave. I think we do more than that. There's nothing wrong with believing in. That's the first step. It puts us in With some good company. Hopefully, all of us in this room, we believe in Jesus. We believe He is Lord. We believe He is Savior. However, our company is inclusive of another group. James two nineteen tells us that even the demons believe, and they shudder. Right. So to say we believe in Jesus is a good thing, but it's not good enough. I'm headed out to Israel tomorrow with some of our church members and a couple others, and many from around the state and even around the country. There's about 55 of us going, and we're flying out to Israel. And I was asked Friday by a person, a lady, I believe, asked me, like, what are you most excited to see when you get to Israel? And I had to think about that for a little bit. I was like, I. There's a lot of wonderful things. I mean, I've read the Bible for my whole life and, and just love the stories. But I answered, I was like, I think the thing I'm most interested in seeing is the Sea of Galilee. We're going to stay in a hotel for a couple of nights right there on the banks of the Sea of Galilee. It's beautiful. It's, I'm excited about that. But the reason I'm excited is not the beauty of the Sea of Galilee. I've always been intrigued by Mark chapter 5. When Jesus, with his disciples, gets in the boat, he crosses the Sea of Galilee, and he comes to the, uh, the, the, the shore there, and there's a man that the Bible, or we refer to as the demoniac. It's usually in the, the little above the, the passage in your Bible to say the demoniac there. It's kind of a title for this person. And he comes down to Jesus, and the, we learn from that text that he's, he has legions of demons. He's demon-possessed, well, I mean, like more than anyone else, right? He's got legions in him. But when they come down to Jesus what do they say to Jesus? They call him by name. They know who he is. Have you come to torment us? They know who Jesus is, right? So when James tells us in 219 that the demons believe in shudder, that is exactly what we see in the Bible. So it's good that we believe in Jesus. It's different when we believe on Jesus. What does it mean to believe on Jesus? It's the idea of staking your life on him the idea of you're, 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 you're mooring your boat up to the shores of the Lord Jesus as, as, as master of your life, and you're burning the ship and staying there. There's no turning back. Believing on Jesus as Lord and Savior. We must believe on Him. I wonder this morning, if you believed on Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Secondly, we must understand the importance of believer's baptism. Again, going back to verse 21, it says that when all the people were baptized. The believer's baptism here or water baptism that we see uh, in the text here is is the same thing that we see throughout the New Testament, that uh, um, believers were baptized after they trusted Jesus. It's what we would say post-conversion. It comes after your understanding that you're a sinner. You've turned from that sin and you've turned to Jesus. And the next step, the first step of obedience, if you will, is believer's baptism It's an expression of the repentance that you have made. It symbolizes the death of the burial, the resurrection of Jesus, right? Uh, like when we baptize someone here at Red Lane, we take them down into the water. And so it's a picture of the death of Jesus Christ, the burial of Jesus Christ. As we raise that individual out of the water, it's the picture of Jesus being resurrected. It's, at the same time, it's a picture of that individual symbolically saying, I am dying to myself. I'm dead to my sins, right? I, those are being buried, and I'm now walking in this newness of life as they're coming out of the water, symbolizing the resurrection, new life that Jesus offers. It's what Paul says in Second in, um, Corinthians 5, all things have become, all, all things have passed away, and behold, all things have become new. That's what is symbolized in believers' baptism, and we need to highlight that. Sometimes it can be confusing, though, because baptism in the New Testament, at times, maybe many times, is, seems, it seems to be simultaneously with a person's profession of faith. So we might, be, uh, we might have the tendency to think, I need to be baptized to be saved, to be forgiven of sin. But that's not what the Bible teaches at all. That's not what John's baptism was. that's not what any of the baptisms were. It's simply a simultaneous profession of Faith. Let me give you an example of this, okay? I know some of you are like, I don't know what you mean. Give me an example. Here's an example. Acts chapter 8. You've got Philip, who's a deacon. He's went down to Samaria to preach. God's told him, hey, you need to leave this great work and go to this desert road that leads to Gaza, and there you're going to find somebody. And so he disobediently went, and he goes, and he finds this Ethiopian eunuch, this man from the court of uh, 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 the queen of, of, of Ethiopia. He goes. Uh, He's traveling back to Ethiopia from Jerusalem. He's reading this copy of Isaiah, and he's in Isaiah 53, what we read before we took the Lord's Supper. Philip hears him reading it. He walks up, begins to ask some questions. He's invited up into the chariot, and he spends some time preaching the gospel from Isaiah 53. And along the way, the man's heart is cut to the core. He understands his sin. He understands forgiveness is found in Jesus. And in that moment, he says, hey, man, here's some water what would prevent me from being baptized? He says nothing. Verse 37 is usually in a footnote because it's not in the early manuscripts, but it really speaks of probably what happened there. He says, nothing would prevent you if you have turned from your sin and trust Jesus as Lord and Savior. And so baptism for the Ethiopian eunuch was simultaneous with his profession of faith, but it did not bring salvation to him. That came as he turned from sin and in faith turned toward Jesus. Y'all with me? I said you need to set your plow just a little bit lower, but we're not, we're not walking in some really deep theological um, territory this morning. So he's baptized. In the early church, baptism was a, a really, really big deal. You say, what's the big deal about baptism? It, really, it, it, it symbolized a clear break from the old way of life. It's the same thing that happens around the world today few years ago, last time I was overseas, I uh, was in South Asia, and um, we baptized some folks that had, been, that had come to Christ bef- long before we got there, and so they're working through uh, moving to that point in their life because for them, culturally, is a big deal. That literally means we're stepping out from our Hindu culture, which means we're stepping away from our Hindu family, and, and so this can cost us greatly. It was the same thing in the New Testament. You're saying, I'm, I'm walking away from, the, for, for this Ethiopian man, he's saying, I'm walking away from the animistic religion that we have in Africa. For the Jew, they're saying, I'm stepping away from Judaism, and I believe that Jesus is what the Jews are looking for. So it could cost you with family, it could cost you with friends, it could cost you with employment, it could cost you with citizenship in the community. It was a big deal. In Christianized America, it's not that big a deal for us, unfortunately. Mainly because it's not always public. We get baptized behind closed doors in a little uh, baptistry like we have upstairs. There's nothing wrong with that, but it doesn't carry the weight that perhaps it would if we were in city square. Also, I think, unfortunately, the stress that some denominations, even our own as Southern Baptists, that we've placed on making sure that people understand the difference between a profession of faith, and following through in believer's baptism that it may have watered down, no pun intended, baptism. And so I want to bring that up and say, you're not saved through baptism, but you need to make that your first step in your walk with Jesus after you are saved. We need to believe in baptism. Some of you um, may need to get your baptism in order. A few years ago, one of our just... She's now moved away, but uh, Gloria, she she's such a servant here for what thirty years that she's a member here. She'll now when she comes back from South Carolina, she worships with us. But a few years ago, she came to a place in her own life where she realized, hey, I was baptized young, but I never was a Christian until I turned twenty-seven, and then what three years ago she it clicked in her head. I need to get my baptism in order, and we baptized her. That may be you this morning. Third thing, I got to hurry here. Third thing that we need to make sure that we understand the importance of, and that is belief in the Trinity. Belief in the Trinity. When Jesus was baptized, Luke tells us that the heavens were opened. Now, we don't know exactly what that scene looked like. We don't know exactly what took place. We're not given a lot of detail, perhaps, it was something similar to what we might see in a Marvel movie, the, a portal's open to another dimension and, and everyone was able to kind of peer into that dimension and see all these shining beings gliding around the glory of God. I don't know what that looked like, but I guarantee it was awesome, right? We know that John saw it because John... Uh, John's gospel records John the Baptist's account of that, that he saw what was taking place. I also happen to believe that everyone there on the banks of the Jordan that day saw it as well, that they saw the spirit of God who is immaterial, who's like the wind that blows wherever he wills come in the form of a dove and light upon God the son, anointing him for the work that he was about to do. They also heard God the father thundering his approval of God the son, approving his life. He's connecting the messianic prophecies of Psalm 2 and Psalm 42 to God, the Son. In this approval, he's retrospectively pleased because the Son has lived righteously for 30 years. He's not backtalked his mama one time. He didn't fuss about anything. He didn't do anything that teenagers do. He was perfect and holy, and the Father is approving the righteousness of God, the Son. Perspectively, prospectively, he is showing showing that he is pleased because the sacrifice the son's going to make to atone for sin is going to satisfy the wrath of God the Father against sin. And so God the Father says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. What we see in this text is a Trinitarian um, perspective on God. You see, in Jesus' baptism, all three persons of the Godhead are present. We've got Father, you've got Son, you've got the Spirit. And so, as we read this, it stands in contrast to what we see in other beliefs about God. There are some who were wrestling with the nature of God and trying to understand who God is and what God is like, and they would, they would uh, define God like this, that He exists as one God, but He he operates in various modes. In other words, in the Old Testament, God is Father. In the New Testament, God is the Son, and He's Jesus. In other situations, both Old and New Testament, God might uh, operate as the Spirit. And so you've got these various modes of God operating at different times, but it's one God. They're trying to to, to make a theological argument for the, uh, for the for the fact that God is one, which is the it's what Jews believe. It's what we believe. And yet that's not what we see in the text as we see what I would describe as three persons. And so this concept of God existing in various modes, these particular three modes is what's called modalistic monarchianism. Now I know you're not going to go home with that. I just wanted to say it because it's fun to say. Simply you can refer to it as modalism. It's It's a system that's somewhat popular today. There's some uh, preachers on TV that are really, really uh, popular. A lot of people follow them. They, they subscribe to this. I hear. Here's what I would say about that. I don't believe that's a Christian doctrine. I don't believe we can call ourselves Christian and not believe that God is three in one, Father, Son, and Spirit. And the reason I can make that statement, I think, with clarity and with conviction, is because in this text we see three, all three persons at one time. God the Father is not operating in one mode and then he switches to another mode and then he's off to a third mode. No, God the Son is there and God the Spirit is descending on God the Son and God the Father is speaking and proclaiming his approval of all of this, all three happening simultaneously. We must believe in the Trinity. It is the orthodox position of the church. So I believe it's one of the things that makes us Christian. Do you believe in God being three in one? I need to move on here. i got a lot more to say about that, but I was telling uh, my assistant Thursday, I gave her the outline for this. I'm like, man, I just don't like what I'm doing. Here. I'm covering all of these, these verses and, and they got these major concepts and I'm trying to do them all in one message. We literally could do at least four messages and maybe I'll do that, I don't know. But uh, I'm really just hitting the high points here. But let's, let's land the plane. Number four, we must understand the importance of belief in the historical Jesus. Alright, so now we want to connect the genealogy to this story that, that Luke is kind of he, he's hitching the caboose to. Alright. So as we look at the gospels, we see that there's only two genealogical records of Jesus, his ancestry. So if we went to ancestry.com, uh, basically what we're seeing here is there's two records of that: Matthew 1, Luke chapter 3. You, if you read those, you'll see they're very different. Matthew Basically, it's giving you the genealogy of Joseph as Jesus' legal guardian and going all the way back to Abraham. Luke gives you what I believe is the genealogy of Mary and taking it back to God himself. Uh, Luke also gives it in reverse order. Uh, In fact, there's no other other genealogy in the Bible. There's no rabbinic teaching or text on genealogies that actually begins or ends with the name of God. And so there's a lot of significance to this way that Luke presents the genealogy. It's very unique. It ought to grab our attention. So with that said, let me give you three quick things uh, that I believe Luke makes clear about the historicity of the Lord Jesus. Number one, this is significant because messianically, Jesus fulfilled every prophecy. Here's what you need to know about that. Jesus was not a charlatan that showed up on the scene, made grandiose claims. I'm the Messiah. I'm the son of God, I'm the son of man, and yet never could back it up. No, he fulfilled every single prophecy that we see in the Old Testament. Everything that was pointed and talked about in the day and age in which he came, all of that lined up with the Lord Jesus. And and if we had time, we could go and work through all of those prophecies, and you could see how they dovetail with the life and the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Perfectly. He was not a charlatan. He was the Son of God. He was God incarnate. He is the Messiah. So the historical record here allows us to lay his life and his claims alongside all of the prophecies and to see that he is in fact very God a very God. He is the Messiah. Secondly, this is significant because salvifically, salvation wise, Jesus as the Son of God takes on Adam's flawed sonship and redeems it. Here's what I mean by that. Going back to Genesis chapter three in the garden, as God is cursing Adam, He curses Eve, He curses the serpent, He curses creation. In that conversation with Eve, because of her sin, He says, "You're going to have pain in childbearing, but you're going to give birth. Or you're going to have an heir that comes from you. A, a son's going to be born to you who will crush the head of the serpent, even as the serpent bites the heel. And so there's going to be one who comes from Eve." Who's going to bring life? There, in other words, there's going to be a new Adam who comes and does what the old Adam could not and failed to do, right? Jesus is the second Adam. He, Paul lays this out very extensively in Romans five seventeen 17 and 1 Corinthians 15. He talks about how Jesus is the second Adam who makes atonement for all of humanity, who does what the first Adam failed to do. And then lastly, practically, Jesus is acquainted with our weaknesses, What we see in this genealogy is a record of Jesus' ancestry. That means he was here in real time and space. He's not a figment of our imagination. He's not a mythological character. No, Jesus lived and breathed and worked in this world. It also means that he understands us. He's been in our shoes. He knows our weaknesses. I don't know about you, but that gives me great encouragement to know that that I'm not just giving my allegiance over to some sort of fixture and some sort of mythology. I'm giving my life over to a man and a God who's lived like I've lived and done it victoriously and gives me that victory as well. Hebrews 4.15 says this. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Who are they talking about here? are talking about Jesus. Jesus lived this life perfectly, and he knows everything that we go through. Hey, he knows the pain of bearing a loved one. He knows the pain and sorrow of what it means to see people hurt and suffer. He knows the, the, the suffering that comes with sickness and illness. We, we should never think that Jesus didn't get sick. He was God. He didn't get sick. No, he was human as well. He experienced everything that we went through. All of those temptations. I mean, think about it. He had the devil of hell tempting him. We're about to get to that in Luke chapter four in the coming weeks. You think you got it bad. You don't have Satan on your trail. You got one of his little minions that chases you around. He had the serpent himself taunting him. If you're really the son of God, throw yourself down. If you're the son of God, eat this bread, right? He's acquainted with everything we are, yet without sin. So what do you believe about Jesus today? Do you believe he's just a mythical character, or do you, the, the, someone that, can has, that makes a great story but really can't make a great life? Or do you believe in a historical Jesus who lived and offered his perfect life as the atoning sacrifice to pay the penalty for your sin? Frankie Lane sang that song back in the early 50s, I believe. It was a song really about nothing. It was a song that had no object to it. Too many of us today have no object to our faith. We just have faith. This morning, I would call us to have an object to it. I'd call us to have a, a Jesus at the cornerstone of our life. I would call us to be those who are grounded in the word of God. I would call us to believe what we need to believe, to believe on Jesus as Lord and Savior, to believe in believers' baptism and, and, and walk in that. Let that be the expression of your walk with Jesus, to rest in the Trinity, Man, there's great comfort in the Trinity. Think about what the Trinity does for us. God the Father appoints our salvation. God the, the Son accomplishes our salvation on the cross through the empty tomb. And God the Spirit applies that to us. I mean, who, who, who's drawing us to Jesus when we're sitting on the Word of God? It's the Spirit that speaks to us. It's the Spirit that bears witness to us. Rest in the Trinity. And then lastly, glory in the fact that Jesus is historical rather than mythical. The Bible has good news for us. I don't know if that hits you this morning, but if we're going to be Christian, we need to believe like a Christian. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word, and we thank you for its authority over our life. God, I understand that we wrestle all the time with what we believe. We're constantly inundated with a culture that is uh, doing everything it can to move us away from you, to abandon our convictions, to abandon Christian principles. Lord, we're in essence in the danger of being brainwashed because everything is against the teaching of the Word of God. But Lord, I thank you that you've given us your Word. And in that Word, you reveal who you are. You tell us who we are. You tell us the hope that we can have in your Son and where that life is found and how we receive it. And God, this morning, my prayer is that we, set in this room, would believe on the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, that we would make him the master of our lives. Lord, many in this room have already done that and we thank you for that. Pray that they'd lean into that a little bit more each and every day, just resting and relishing in the gospel. Father, I pray that we would Believe better when it comes to baptism. It is important not to take us to heaven, but what a statement that is as a Christian to say, hey, here's where I'm planting my flag. Here's where I'm living my life. I'm unashamedly following Jesus Christ. I'm breaking from the old way, and I'm walking in this new way. God, we thank you for the Trinity, for the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. We thank you for how you work through the persons of the Godhead in our life. Father, we thank you that the Lord Jesus is not just some sort of make believe fairy tale. But there's a history that we can grab hold of. There's a history there that we can share with others and help them to know that Jesus is real. He's different from everyone else. There's a history there, even with the cross in the tomb. May that spur us on to share our faith. May it spur us on to lead our families. May it spur us on to be engaged with the gospel anywhere and everywhere we can. This morning, as we respond to your word today, I pray the Spirit of God would show us what you want us to do. Lord, for people who need to give their life to Jesus, give them the boldness to do that this morning. Lord, maybe a, a father of Jesus, needs to get their baptism in order, God, pray that would be a priority from this day forth with them. They begin to, begin, they begin to ask the question, can I be baptized? What would prevent me like the Ethiopian eunuch? God, just be in charge of this time as we respond. In Jesus' name, amen. We trust that you and your family have been encouraged and blessed today. If you have just made a decision to follow Jesus, or if you would like to pray with someone, or even if you want to know more about our church, please contact our church office or send us an email. We are looking forward to seeing you next week here in person or online. See you then.